0: If you have your copies of God's Word, we'll be starting Acts chapter 9. It looks like a partial rapture happened over here. And uh, Pastor Jory, again, taking time off from work to take about 50 young people to Lake Ann Camp. It's Lake Ann, right? All right. And they'll be getting back uh, this afternoon, but it's left a giant hole over here. This morning I can guarantee you that I will be inadvertently flipping uh, Saul and Paul because this is about when Saul becomes Paul. And so no matter how hard I try, those are going to oscillate and I just ask for your grace on that. And I'm not asking for grace in any other area other than that. Let's pick up in verse 1. Now Saul, who we will know soon as Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, likely Caiaphas, and asked for extradition. Did I say that word right? Yes. Extradition letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, which he knows he will, and we'll find out why in a minute, if he finds any that are belonging to the way, both men or women, he might bring them back to Jerusalem bound. And as he was traveling, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard the voice saying to him, Pretty please, 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 Saul, accept me as your Savior. Is that what your text says? No. You know, sometimes we approach God's word like it's a romance novel. And I understand there's some tenets of it. It's like God's love letter to man in many ways. But it is much more than that. It is also uh, a an autobiography of the of the all-powerful God. And look what he does here. It suddenly a light of heaven flashes around him, and Paul was thrown to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and enter the city and go where I tell you and and tell you what you must do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless. They heard a voice, but they didn't see anyone. Only only Saul saw. (laughs) You ever just talk and things hit you funny? I should have named this Saul, Saul. In fact, that's what it's named now. Get up into the city and do what I tell you to do. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Do you know prior to this, he could see nothing and his eyes were opened? And now his eyes are opened and he sees nothing. And leading him by hand, they brought him to Damascus. And I'll just throw in verse 9 as bonus. And he was there three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. And with that, let's ask God's blessing, and we'll walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly
1: Father, we come beside you, before you, (laughs) before you, thankful for your word. Lord, we come to claim your promise that you will bless your word. So we ask that you bless it for your glory, for your kingdom, but bless it in our hearts and our lives as well that this deposit of your Holy Spirit that seals us until the day of redemption may draw out righteousness and holiness because you are righteous and you are holy. And when you indwell something, you clean it, you fill it. So Father, fill us, sanctify us. May day by day, week by week, month by month, we are more in love with you and less in love with ourselves. I ask that You would use me in a mighty way, but not because I deserve it, Lord, but because I don't. You do. I ask that You glorify Yourself. Give me the words to say. May I teach Your Word. And if I drift from it, shut my mouth. Thank You for these people. I readily admit, Lord, they belong only to you. To you be the glory. And Father, I pray this and I ask this in your Son's precious
0: and holy name. And if you're awake this morning, say amen. Amen. All right. The story of Christianity is about to take one of the greatest turns in all of redemptive history. Apart from the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is almost no one in all of history that has made a larger impact for Christ than Saul, who will soon be Paul here. He wrote nearly 13 books of the New Testament and took the gospel of Jesus Christ to Gentile nations and to kings and and royalty but before we reflect on all that he has done, we must see who he is right now. If you look closely, you can see him racing towards Damascus. Allow me to paint an acceptable picture in my imagination, if you will, this morning. Can you see him riding down the road? Can you see his eyes? They are cold and they are narrow. His jaw is locked. And he is fixated on one thing, the destruction of this cancer called Christianity. You can see the dust on the road rise high as he pushes his horse to the breaking point, And the men who are following behind spurring their steeds over and over again to keep pace with their impassioned leader. The damp ink on the extradition papers from the high priest are rolled carefully in a saddlebag. Saul will put an end to this cancer of those who are of the way. He will restore Israel to its, its religious purity. And with that, we pick up the text as Saul races down the road towards a high concentration of Jewish believers in Damascus. And it says this. Now, Saul still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. Have you ever met someone that always has just one thing on their mind? All they have is one thing on their mind. No matter what you talk about with that person, the conversation will always find itself moving quickly to that which they are most passionate about. For Paul, he is breathing threats of murder. It's just, it is so ingrained into who he is that he just breathes out his hatred towards christianity in fact just a few chapters before he held the coats or the coats by him as they stoned stephen to death or they flogged all 12 of the disciples he hates them sometimes we are you're in the presence of someone where your conversation will always go to one place for example I have a friend by the name of Steve DeMann. And no matter what you talk about, he will make it about horses. I don't care what you're going to talk about with Steve, whether you like it or not, you'll be end up talking about horses. Pick a subject, any subject. If there, well, this cord right here. If I were to say to Steve, hey, what gauge is this cord that goes into the speaker? Steve would likely say, well, that's easy. It's the same gauge cord that I would use to secure the stable for my horses. And then we would talk about that. And soon pictures would roll out in, a, in, a, in a, a montage video of how he loves horses set to chariots of fire. You think I'm joking. Steve, are you in this room? You want to pull up a video right now? Let's move forward, all right? And then he'll talk about how one day he's going to expand his horse empire. We all have things that consume us, do we not? Did you know that Mark Hurd has a Tesla? Does anyone here know that Mark Hurd has a Tesla? I've heard rumors and groanings, but I've never seen it. I was forced to take a ride in it not too many months ago, against my will. We all have things. Do you know that Mark has Tesla socks and shirts? I mean, that's an idol if you think about it, folks. We all have things that consume us. You know, for me, it's prayer, all right? I just, I can't get enough. But for Saul, it was hatred towards believers. No matter what you talked about with Saul, he would breathe out his hatred. It's also important to remember that Rome allowed... Uh, let me see here. I moved a little ahead. So so consumed was, was Saul with destroying Christians that attacking them ate at his whole life. So much so that the believers in Jerusalem, which were many, all right, we find that in Scripture, there were many of them, i got to fix this, it's driving me nuts, there it is, all right, there were a lot of people in Jerusalem, but that alone could not satisfy his rage or hunger for destruction. So, because he's so frustrated, he goes to the high priest and he asks for letters for him so that he can go eat some more Believers. The buffet in Jerusalem is not filling his gut of hatred. Now, Christians outside of Jerusalem had not yet separated themselves from the local synagogues. It's important to understand that. Now it's happening in Jerusalem because that's where persecution broke out and the Hellenistic Jews and the Diaspora Jews dispersed. We know uh, Stephen was one of them. Philip went to Samaria and then he, the Ethiopian eunuch and 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 these Hellenistic Jews ran for their lives and the 12 apostles stayed back because the persecution in Jerusalem was so intense. But that persecution was not as intense the further you went out from Jerusalem. So Christians still would intermingle in the synagogue. It's also important to remember that Rome, the occupying force, allowed the high priest to have authority over Jewish places of worship. Hence, you see here that he asked for papers for the synagogues because Rome allowed Caiaphas to have authority over Jewish places of worship. So he's like, hey, let me go into the synagogue and get some of these believers. So the high priest, who was likely Caiaphas, could give Saul legal papers for the extradition of believers from synagogues so he 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 brought back so that he could bring them back to Jerusalem for persecution or imprisonment or here's one conversion therapy to bring them back, to abandon the way. And, and if so be it, he would murder them. They've already done that with Stephen. And they will do it again. Hence the words we see that he might bring them back to Jerusalem. These are papers that give him authority to go into synagogues and bring people of the way, you and I, back to Jerusalem. So he went to Damascus. Now this is odd. Because Damascus is not in Israel. That's interesting, is it not? Not in Israel. This personifies, I don't know if that's the right word, this intensifies, I don't know if that's the right word, but I think you know the right word I'm trying to chase there. This intensifies how hungry Saul was to persecute Christians. Damascus is 150 miles north of Israel. Israel is this lower star here, right here, all right? And in order to get, this is such a cool projector, all right? In order to get from here to here, this is 150 miles, Israel stops right here. I feel like a teacher, all right? Pay attention. Now, what was I talking about? Oh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, Damascus, outside of Israel. They have to go a long ways to get to Damascus. And why in the world would you care what's going on in Syria? He's hungry. He heads 150 miles north to Jerusalem that resides outside of Israel and Syria. What begs the question, why would Saul go outside Israel? Why not hit Samaria? Is there not a revival going on in Samaria? He doesn't care about Samaria, but I'm sure he cares that Christianity is spreading. He passes through the Judean region. He passes through Galilee. I want you to grab this. He rides right past all of these areas, 150 miles worth, and heads north just past the border of Israel, past the Sea of Galilee, into Syria. Why? Isn't history fun? Geography's fun. Here's why. Damascus has the highest concentration of Hellenistic Jewish believers. This is where a lot of the believers went to flee the persecution that was happening in Jerusalem and was spreading through Israel. Remember that many Hellenistic Jews dispersed and fled Jerusalem. We find that in Acts chapter 7, all right? And many landed just outside of Israel in Damascus, close to the border of Israel. Okay, it's close, as you can see the star there. It's close to the city of Israel, or the nation of Israel, but it's outside of its borders, maybe providing just a little protection. Likely thinking this Would provide protection from Israel's leadership without giving up convenient access to Israel when you needed it. By the way, Damascus is the ancient capital of Syria. And to give you an idea just how many believers uh, live there, we find that uh, Josephus wrote that in 66 AD, um, yeah, there it is, all right, and this comes from a commentary from F.F. Bruce, that 20,000 Christians were massacred in 66 AD. 20,000 believers were killed for their faith just about two decades later. This is a city that is full, full of Jewish Hellenistic believers. So, here is my point. The reason Saul went to Damascus is because it offered the largest buffet of believers available to satisfy his hunger for his hate and rage. Damascus would contain, by the way, many, many synagogues and had members who who were, now I like this, who were belonging to the way. Belonging to the way. I want to stop and observe something here. The words belonging to the way... Um, was a title that was given to Christians long before the world gave us the title of Christian. It was the world, by the way, that gave us the title of of Christians. I believe it came out of Antioch, if my, my brain serves me correctly. The word Christians, by the way, was never given to us by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is a title that the world gave us. But before all of that happened, we were called people of the way. We are people of the way. And this really derives itself from some of Jesus' teaching. When Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 6, the favorite verse of my, my departed friend, Steve Garakinis, this was his favorite verse. Jesus said, I am the way. You are people of the way. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Christianity is the way to God and the way of God. You'll find that in Acts 19, Acts 22, Acts 24. True believers, here it is, are no longer their own. True believers are no longer their own. We have been purchased with a price. We are not to live our way. We are not to live our way. Here it is. We are to live his way as people of the way. Here's the first question. Here's the first, like, just a little bit of application that's going to drift down as we shake these trees here. If your way of living was placed on a scale over here, your way, your desires, your passions as a person, and, and the way of Jesus and your desire and love for him was placed on the scale on this side over here. If your way and Jesus' way were put on the scale in your life, which way would your scale tip? That's a very important indication, by the way. A person of the way was identified by not only what they said, but how they lived their lives. So let's ask ourselves a question. If someone who did not know you or did not know me did not know us If they watched our lives for a few days, would they tell that we are people of the way? Would Jesus be in our lips? Would prayer be in our mouth? Would church be in our life? Would joy be in our walk? Would purpose be in our work? The gospel in our relationships, the truth in our ethics, are we of the way? And could we be found? And then it says this, And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, My friends, this is nothing short than the exalted glory of God. This is the glory of God. In fact, Saul later tells us in verse 17 of this chapter that he saw the person of Jesus Christ in this light. Now, those around us, or around him, did not see, they only heard. There is a, 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 a reality of being an apostle that's in that, but we'll get that at a later time. I like how James Boyce describes this. He says this God spoke, and God was Jesus. God spoke, and God was Jesus. May I make a quick observation here? Jesus did not plead with Paul. Look at what's all that's happening here. He's breathing out murderous threats. If I could, in my imagination, he is racing for, towards Damascus. And I bet when he got anywhere near Samaria, that even ticked him off even more. and impassioned him even more. As he sees revival uh, going through the land of Israel of people of the way. Jesus did not plead with Saul. I like how one gray-haired pastor spoke it. He said this, Jesus did not say to, to Saul, Oh Saul, won't you please, please trust in me? I've done everything I can do to make this relationship possible and the rest is in your hands and I have no power to convince you to believe in me. It's your decision, Saul. It's your decision. I can't force you. Oh, my friends, look what Jesus did. He knocked him off the horse, if there's a horse, but I've declared it, so there's a horse, all right? I don't know. But he knocks him to the ground, he blinds him with his glory, he rebukes him with his words, and he completely overpowers the man. My friends, let us stop trying to dance people into the gate of heaven and let us in love, in love, in compassion, and in truth simply share Jesus and leave the rest to our overpowering God who is sovereign over all things, even that of our salvation. He is either all-powerful and all-sovereign or He is not. Now, with that in mind, He says this, Saw, saw. Hey, that's the title of our sermon. Saw, saw. So now it's saw, 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 saw. (laughs) This double use indicates intense emotion from our God. D.L. Bach brings that up, and so do many other commentaries. I want you to grab that. God has emotion. Let me... Baptists, you know where I'm going with this. God has intense emotions. It's okay to have intense emotions. God loves, He weeps, He rejoices, God hates. Put that on a bumper sticker. God hates and He loves. He celebrates. And by the way, we are created in his image. We have emotion because we are created in the image of God. We have emotion. The double use indicates intense emotion here. Like like when Jesus looked at Martha and said, Martha, Martha, and he says it twice because he is stressing the passionate importance of his presence while he is here with them. He looked at Simon and he said, Simon, Simon. That's when Peter was being used of Satan to tempt him not to go to the cross. And, 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 and Jesus says, get behind me, Simon, Simon. Remember when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem? When Jesus longed passionately for Israel to repent. I want to touch on the pulse of something here. Often in our circles, we try to divorce emotion or passion from our worship or our study of God's Word as if emotion is a distraction or a lessening of our faith, and it is not. In our attempt to be separated from different denominations, we have divorced ourselves from a truth. My friends, emotion ought to be both an offering and a product of our response to truth. While it is not the goal, it oftentimes ought to be a result... Let us not be afraid to express emotion because of the overwhelming truth that we are experiencing in Jesus Christ as our Lord. The Bible says, Shout unto the Lord a new song. Lift your hands and sing. Play skillfully with joy. Strike the tambourine. Lift your voice. Jump for joy. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Here is my point. God is a passionate God who contains strong emotion and we ought to not be afraid to reflect our God. We too should not shy away from emotions or passions that bring glory to God and promote His ways. For we are people, grab this, of the way. So why is God so passionate out here? This, this isn't just about, hey, let's, let's let it rip during our worship. That's really not what this is about here, all right? We have to ask ourselves, why is he saying, saw, 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 saw? Why is he saying that? We need to grab this. Because when God is passionate about something, we, we, we might want to pay attention to it. So what is he passionate about? Here's what he is. He says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? This is what God is passionate about here. So let's, let's look into this here. Let us look into uh, who Saul is persecuting. Who is, who is Saul Paul Who is he racing towards in Damascus to devour because he needs a larger buffet of hate and anger? Who is he after? Talk to me, church. Believers of the way. People of the way. Here it is. The church. Yet God, that is the resurrected Jesus, uses the words. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? I need you to grab this here because Grand Rapids has abandoned this. We live in a city of pulse christian Christianity. I want you to grab that. And it sticks to us. Whether we like it or not. We drift towards this post-Christian Christianity in our lives. I need you to grab this. Nothing more in all of Scripture pictures the strong solidarity with Jesus and the church as this right here. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. That is an undeniable fact in this Scripture. And to that, if I said, if someone is persecuting the church, they are persecuting Jesus, all of us would say in agreement, what? Amen. Okay, 12 of us would say amen. But let us not walk away so quickly from an easy statement. It's easy to go, yeah, if you, if you, if you drag a believer and put them into prison and strip them of their rights or, or, or murder them, you do that to Jesus Christ. It is such an easy and costless sentence for us. So let's not walk away so quickly and let's intellectually and biblically bear this out. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. But let's flush this out and be consistent. Here it is. Let me ask you a question. If I punch you in the face, am I equally punching you in your body? What's the answer? Give me the simple answer. It's what? You know, you wouldn't say, yeah, he didn't punch my body, he my face. You know, it, it, to do one is to do the other. To slap your face is to slap your body. To poke you in the eye is to poke your body. To take a feather and slide it down your cheek is to do that to your body. Because the head and the body are inseparably linked so here's a question. Why do many in our post-Christian Christianity in the church think that Jesus and his church can be separated in our treatment of them? Let me push this a little further. If it is true to persecute the church, it is, it is to persecute Jesus. We know that. That's true right here. Then grab onto your belt buckle. Let's be intellectually consistent and biblically consistent. Then logically, the following is equally true. To devalue the church is to devalue Jesus. Let's push it. To be apathetic about the church is to be apathetic about Jesus. To not serve the church is to not serve Jesus. You see, my friends, what you do with the church, you will do with Jesus. Now, you may disagree with that, and that is fine, but let me tell you, you are not disagreeing with me. You are disagreeing with Jesus. There's, there's this, this, this tendency to want to buck this thought because we want to tailor make the, the, as a person of the way, exactly what we want to be true. So please allow this verse that comes from the lips of Jesus to be powerfully true. And let's just let Jesus talk here. And and let's throw it up here. Words of Jesus. In fact, he signs it. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. Then the righteous, who are the righteous... That's, that's us, the, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did this to one of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. You cannot separate. Jesus identifies with his own to identify with Jesus is to identify with his church there is an inseparable link between Jesus and the church in fact Saul himself writes in later his later teachings that Jesus is the head and the church is his body I have said this before and I will make it quick you can no more say you are faithful to Christ and not his church Then you can say to your spouse, I am faithful to your head, but not your body. Go ahead and try that. Let me know how that works out for you. Go ahead and tell your spouse that you are committed to their head, but you will not be faithful to their body. We would say, that's crazy talk. Do we not do that in the kingdom of God? Nowhere in all the word of God is Jesus and his church separated. To belong to Christ is to belong to his church. Here's a question. Based on the value you place on your local church, based on the value you place on the local church, what would you measure your value of Christ? What would be your value? They are directly linked do you know it is impossible to fulfill God's word in your life absent from faithfully belonging to a local church? It is impossible to obey the New Testament absent from the local church. This is a message of almost all of the New Testament. In fact, most of the New Testament is written to the local church as a whole to be applied in community, not individually. Wow! And then it says this. And he said, who are you, Lord? Now, I need you to understand what Saul is saying here. This is not a Christological confession. But it indicates high respect and a knowledge that something amazing is happening here. But he does, but he does not know exactly who. So Jesus identifies himself. And when he hears this, he hears the words, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And then all that pre-salvational work began to fill the mind of Saul. Now by pre-salvational work, I mean this. Paul was an expert in the salvation message of people of the way. And here's why. As a Pharisee, he was a student of Gamaliel. All right, who, by the way, was present when Jesus was being interrogated and, and 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 sentenced to crucifixion by the Romans, He is a student, likely in the chamber. he is a member of the Sanhedrin. Saul would have heard and listened to Jesus speak most likely before he was crucified. He listened to Peter and John testified and watched as they all got flogged for being apostles it was it was. Saul, who debated with Stephen about the merits of the gospel before they stoned him to death and now all that comes rushing in and here's what comes rushing in to the mind of Saul Jesus is not dead he is alive the gospel is true he is the way he is the truth and he is the life he is God in the flesh And he is inseparable from his church. And one thing more we must see here is this. And it's beautiful and it's equally true of our salvation. I need you to grab this. We're almost done. This moment between Saul and Jesus is not a moment of judgment. It is a moment of rescue. And look what happens next. I, I like this. Look what happens next. Saul receives orders and he obeys. Now, we might think, well, that's rather unspectacular, isn't it? This is not in my notes, but we'll go there, if I can remember. He is going to be blind for three days. He is going to fast for three days. He is going to pray for three days. And at the end of three days, God is going to send a messenger. I believe the name is, is it Ananias. He's going to lay hands on him, and he's going to receive the Holy Spirit. Again, transitional moment, because no one's going to believe this guy is becoming someone of the way. Can I get a witness on that? And by the way, Ananias calls him brother, Talk about the forgiveness that believers ought to have with one another. Ananias would have likely known someone who was murdered or imprisoned or lost their home because of this cat named Saul. And Ananias walks in there, lays his hands on him. By the way, not because he was fearless, because he says next week, I'm not sure I want to do this, Lord. And the Lord says, I really don't care what you want to do. He calls him brother. And you know what Paul wanted to do before he ate a single piece of food? Don't let this detail miss. He hasn't eaten for three days. How many here have gone three hours? Anyone? (laughs) Three days he doesn't eat. He says, baptize me. Baptize me. Obedience. Obedience is an astounding thing. Saul receives order and he obeys. Do we do that as people of the way? Or do we in our pulse christian Christianity within Grand Rapids have a culture that we just call salvation? Grab this. Jesus says, get up, go to the city, and I will tell you what to do. We will see next week that he spends three days in repentance, fasting and prayer, so repentant and obedient that before he even ate any food he wanted to be baptized. We'll unpack that next week. But what I want to draw out the what I want to draw out is this and we're almost done. Christ is always the initiator of salvation. Christ is always the initiator when it comes to our salvation. And when it comes to true salvation, if Christ is the initiator and it comes to true salvation and true conversion, grab this, Grand Rapids. There is no separation between the terms Savior and Lord. There is no separation between the terms Savior and Lord. They are, they are one word in truth. I often have times people get mad at me for teaching this. You are teaching lordship salvation. And I go, yes. Now I know that has a lot of negative connotations to this. So we'll unpack it just a moment. They'll say, you believe that if I accept Jesus Christ as my savior, he will progressively become the lord of my life. Yes. That always frustrates people. So you're telling me this, this, and that? Yes. Are we done here? Because these questions are super easy. There is no separation between these. Contrast that many in the church today and the teaching of our pulpits, Saul knows nothing. Saul knows nothing. There is not an example in all of the New Testament. Knows nothing of accepting Jesus as Savior and then not making Him Lord. The plain teaching of Scripture is universally consistent. Savior of our soul and Lord of our life is inseparable. Saul was from one moment of his conversion to the end of his life, submissive to Jesus Christ as his Lord. Not perfect, but submissive. He is in essence become a person of the way, a person of the truth, and the person of the life. Notice Saul does not say, I think I will accept you as Savior, but I'm not quite ready to accept you as Lord. No, he obeys immediately. Look at this, it says, Saul got up from the ground. That's about as far as he can obey, by the way. The rest had to come from his friends who came alongside of him, right? And his friends, his eyes were open. He could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to a high concentration of Jewish believers. You see, those truly born again recognize the authority of Jesus and seek to live in joyful obedience to him. And the reference is, can you see it up there? The entire Bible. By this definition, O church, this green box right there, by this definition, how many in the assembly of God truly know salvation and not religion? That's the distinction. How long will we look at the preponderance of evidence in Scripture that tells us that those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is going away. The new way comes in. How long will we turn a blind eye to all of these truths and still call it salvation? Look at what we see here and everywhere in in all of Scripture. And I'm just going to say this statement here. And if you agree with it, say amen. If you don't, say nothing. But here it is. Salvation, true salvation, changes everything! 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 Salvation is not a cocoon prayer that we enter in as a worm and exit the same worm we went in than when we came out. But rather, true salvation is where we are metamorphosized. We are transformed into a completely new creation. Look at, look at, look at, look at, look at. I should have called the sermon that. Look at, look at Saul here. Check this out. Everything changes before this moment. Everyone he was chasing is now abandoned. Everything that was important is now nothing. What was formerly hated is now cherished. Everything he despised is now loved. And the one he railed against, Jesus, is now his greatest prize. Oh, my friends, do we begin to see what is being shown to us here? Oh, beloved, to be in Jesus is to become a person of the way, the way of salvation, the way of truth, the way of life. Oh, let it be said of us today that when people see us along the way, they do not see an old heart with a thin coat of religious paint, but rather they see a new creation in Jesus Christ, a creation that has a master and proclaims in our words and our deeds that all that thrills our soul is Jesus it's funny how God works we started this text with Saul racing towards Damascus with his eyes filled with rage, breathing out murderous hate as he spurs his horse north to wreak havoc on the church. And by the time he got there, he's being led by the hand blind, weak, and helpless. Extradition papers in the saddle. He's racing there, breathing out Murder. He's unstoppable. He has the authority and power of man behind him. And by the time he gets to the end of 150 miles, they're leading him by hand. And what he once hated, he is now a new member of. I love the imagery. For the next three days and nights, he will be helpless, blind, and hungry. Just like Jonah who spent three days and nights in the belly of a fish before he repented and saw the light. So Saul will spend three days and nights in the dark when the scales, almost like scales like a fish. I bet Jonah probably smiled when he read that. And he saw everything in a new light. Here it is, my friends, and we're done. Salvation changes everything it changes everything here it is because it's God who saves God's work is never dormant if God is dormant in your life I'm just going to say it it's because he's not in it God saves when we try to save very little changes Very little changes. When God saves, everything changes. Here's the question. Three words, and when we're done, has everything changed? Next week, we will unpack a very nervous Ananias going to meet a new brother in Christ. And we're going to watch Saul, Paul, Desperate to obey his new Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. May these applications be true in our own lives. May may our relationship with you be more than just some shallow religious structure. But may we be a new creation in you. And if we're not, Lord, may we, may you, because salvation comes from you, may you reveal that we are in need of salvation. Thank you for these people, Lord. Bless them. I pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. I love you. Have a wonderful evening. I'll be rooting for the Detroit Rams.